2: star talk your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide star talk begins right now this is star talk Am I getting better, Chuck? Yeah, yeah man, okay. <laughs> that was extremely James L. Jones. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm working it. Working <laughs> it. Uh, you're listening to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm your personal astrophysicist. I do that at the American Museum of Natural History, right here in New York City, where I also serve as director of the Hayden Planetarium. And in studio with me is Chuck Nice, hello, the one, the only. This is true, as far as you know.
1: And you know what? And nobody else wants another one. <laughs> that's let's that's be uh, let's be honest. You got that one yeah. taking. You got that one covered. I say I'm the one and only. The response is.
2: Thank God. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this is part two of my interview with planetary scientist, friend and colleague, Caroline Porco. I call her Madam Saturn. She's head of the imaging team for NASA's Cassini mission to Saturn and many of its intriguing moons. In the previous segment, segments, we learned about her education, her work on Cassini, and her life. And now we're going to find out about her role in creating the famous photo The pale blue dot. Let's check it out.
3: Immediately after graduating from Caltech, I was made a member of the Voyager imaging team, invited by the team leader Brad Smith. So I went to the University of Arizona to work with him. And only a month or two or three after becoming a team member, I proposed to the Voyager project to look back at the planets, the planets that we could see in the direction of the sun at that time. Because I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool to show what the solar system looked like from an alien arriving from the outer solar system? What would that being see, right? So you would
2: need Voyager to be far enough away to get that distant vista.
3: By the time I joined the team, we were already on our way to Uranus. Mm -hmm. There really is an interesting backstory to this. In order to look in the direction of the sun, you have to shield the sun because the sun
2: will just blow out the picture.
3: Blow out the instruments. Mm-hmm. The instruments were designed for very faint light levels, right? Mm-hmm. You can't look at the sun. So that action would have entailed taking the Voyager antenna off Earth line during the whole Voyager mission the antenna was constantly pointing to Earth line. So it was a radical suggestion. Take the antenna off Earth line, use it to shield the sun, so you maneuver to put the sun behind the edge of the antenna, and there you're gonna see the Earth, Mercury, Mars, Venus, and all the other planets okay well the Voyager project didn't want anything to do with this they said there's no science in it so there's no justifications for doing something as radical as this try to find something else that would be scientifically fruitful and i went away and devised this other experiment of imaging the asteroid bands that had just been discovered by the infrared astronomical satellite that year several years later i find out that carl sagan had proposed the same series of images to the voyager project two years before i did Carl Sagan was given the same response. We're not going to do this.
2: So, if they said no to him, you had no chance. Of
3: course, I was just a measly little postdoc. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. weren't going to pay any attention to me. So, Carl and I ended up joining forces in about 1989, and he went all the way to the NASA administrator to get. The
2: head of NASA the, in Washington, D.C.
3: Right. And the administrator overruled the people on the Voyager project at JPL and demanded that this picture be taken. And I worked on it with Carl, with other people in executing it. So was born the famous pale blue dot. In doctor.
2: 1990, this picture gets taken.
3: Valentine's Day, 1990.
2: And by then, you're beyond Neptune.
3: By then, yeah. the Voyager mission is over.
2: The Voyager uh, tour of the planets is over.
3: Yeah. Yes, the yes. Voyager tour of the planets. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. So wait a minute, so this image of Earth got dubbed The Pale Blue Dot. Carl Sagan writes an entire book with that title.
3: Yeah. I'm thinking it's like the first cosmic meme, The Pale Blue Dot. Mm -hmm. It has become synonymous with planetary brotherhood and, and protection of the environment.
2: Well, as did the original 1968 photo from Apollo
3: 8. No one gave that a name that stuck in people's minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No it was roman- a very
2: recognizable photo, but didn't have a catchy name.
3: And no right. one romanced it the way Carl romanced the pale blue dot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was Carl's mm-hmm. skill,
2: right? Right. So a first pass at a pale blue dot, but then you said, I want to do it again. That's I, audacious, because that was an important icon.
3: Well, I wanted to do it again to make it better, because as a picture, to be honest, it sucked. Can I say that on yeah, you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First of all, Carl in his proposal had said that we should take a picture of the earth awash in a sea of stars well there's not a star to be seen in that picture and then the dot that is earth fell on a beam of scattered light so Mm It wasn't exactly a good picture, but it didn't really matter, did it? Because what Carl had to say about it... What he said mattered more than what the thing looked like. And right? it resonated. Mm-hmm. People really responded to the whole concept of the pale blue dot. Mm-hmm. But I get made the team leader for the Cassini mission at Saturn, and I'm thinking, I'm going to concentrate on making beautiful images. I also told my team, any time-variable phenomenon that we can, let's make it a time series, we could turn it into a movie.
2: Time-variable, you mean anything that changes over time... Don't just take photographs of it. Take so many photographs, you can turn it into a movie.
3: Yes, yeah. And I wanted to do the pale blue dot over Mm -hmm. again. I wanted to make it right. And so I finally got a chance to do it right just recently. I looked into the trajectory that we had planned for Cassini. I think I started about three or four years ago. I found those opportunities when Saturn was eclipsing the sun. We of course did that by design because it's a very good geometry to be in to see fine particles that diffract light.
2: What you're saying is if you're on the backside of Saturn with the sun eclipsed, the sun is still illuminating fine particles that are orbiting the planet and they get rendered visible to you from that vista.
3: Yeah, in the same way that if you have a dirty windshield, you're mm-hmm. driving along in your car, and in the late afternoon you drive towards the west, mm-hmm. suddenly you can't see out your windshield, and you think, "Gotta get my car washed." Right? And it's, it's the, the only time thing. of
2: day you'd feel that way.
3: Or you could see it early in the morning, driving eastward. You're driving mm-hmm. in the direction of the sun. It's a geometry that brings about the process called diffraction. Mm-hmm. And we see things lit up by diffraction when there's tiny dust particles. That's why the E-ring looks the way it does, mm-hmm. by the way, in that picture. But anyway, I'm just saying I found an opportunity in the timeline when we were in the right geometry, and I knew there wasn't a whole lot of scientific observations in there, so I didn't have to arm-wrestle my colleagues to get time just to do a beautiful
2: picture. And Earth has to be visible and not blocked by one of your rings.
3: That's right. Okay. So there were a lot of criteria, and July 19, 2013, is the time that met all those criteria. So that scene has a hundred and forty-one images in it that had to be stitched together, combined. We had to had continuous color from one to the other, mm-hmm. continuous brightness from one to the other.
2: In and- other words, you didn't have a single field of view that was the picture you published. That's a mosaic set of images. Each one required the full hammer of uh, image processing, so that it blends together with all the rest.
3: Yes, and then consider this. During the four hours that that mosaic's made, the geometry is changing. Mm-hmm. So each image had to be reprojected. It was a lot of work.
2: When we come back, more of my interview with Carolyn Porco, Madam Saturn.
0: Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of. Every human being, whoever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam.
2: Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson. Chuck Nice. Yes, sir. Co host. Do a good job as my co host here. Well, thank you, sir. I, I, you know, I appreciate that. I just, I just want to say. I respond well. Well, tell me incurs- I don't say nice things to you. That's <laughs> all you respond well.
1: <laughs> I, got a, I got a feeling that that just uh, met your quota for the rest of the year. <laughs> for like, the month. Don't
2: ever say I didn't say anything nice, and now I'm good. <laughs> We're picking up with my interview with Madam Saturn, planetary scientist, friend, colleague, Carolyn Porco. And in this next clip, she discusses how the pale blue dot image that Cassini reprised turned into something she called the day the earth smiled. What's this about you trying to get everybody to smile?
3: Uh, what, what's that, was, that about? That was probably the greatest thing I've ever done. I think. <laughs> I got... We'll be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> 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 well, let me back up. There have been other pale blue dot pictures taken by other missions, right? Mars missions probably took many pictures of the Earth from Mars orbit.
2: Yeah, because Earth shows up in the Martian sky. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, And Mm -hmm. people,
3: of course, they got moved by the first pale blue dot. They wanted to do it over again, too. So I'm thinking not only would ours be even more gorgeous because we're going to see Saturn in the field with Earth. Saturn
2: is unimpeachably beautiful in any shot.
3: Right. But I thought, wouldn't it be fabulous if in—well, let me back up. In all those previous but this is the second
2: time you've backed us up.
3: I'm I don't gonna, know where I'm, I am now. <laughs> in all those previous pale blue dot images, the picture was taken, and then afterwards, people were told, look, here was the Earth taken three weeks ago. And I'm thinking, well, why don't we tell people in advance? Your picture is going to be taken from the outer solar system, from a billion miles away. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity for people having a communal feeling with the universe...
2: This is the spiritual side of you showing up.
3: It is, I'm sorry. You're going up. And I thought it would be just fantastic. People could feel a sense of unity with the cosmos. They could feel a sense of unity with their fellow human. And they could also appreciate... At that moment, their picture is being taken from a billion miles away. How better to let them know how far humans have come in the exploration of the solar system. It becomes something personal to them.
2: So you're telling me you actually got people to go outside and look up at Saturn in the sky and smile at it?
3: Well, I, no, no, here, even the people on the other side of the planet smiled. <laughs> Because the idea was to smile in celebration, to get this communal feeling out of people, this kind of cosmic love. <laughs> I was after cosmic love.
2: You, where were you in the 60s? We needed you <laughs> What do you mean? I was about
3: 16 years old smoking oh. dope. What were you doing? <laughs> I can say that now because it's legal in my state. I don't know Colorado,
2: <laughs> yeah. You're from Colorado. <laughs>
3: so anyway, I was after cosmic love and it worked and I was so proud.
2: There was quite the social media attention given to it in blogs and in the Twitter streams.
3: It ended up not being announced as early as I would have liked. We should have done it a year ahead for various reasons I won't go into. It didn't get announced until a month ahead, so there wasn't really as big a campaign and as big an announcement as I would have liked. But nonetheless, we got comments from people that were just beautiful. People saying, my God, I've never felt a feeling like this. You know, for once, I felt so united with everybody around the globe. And one person wrote, you know, darn it, we may be floating around on a dust moat. We may be transient. But for 15 minutes, we were there, we were aware, and we smiled. And that's exactly the kind of feeling I wanted people to have. That's beautiful. Oh, thank <laughs> you. you know? And I have to say this for me, it was the same thing. I mean, I'm the one who started this whole thing, but the 15 minutes that it was happening, and I'm looking where Saturn is, and I'm thinking, wow, there's a camera there taking our picture. And knowing that people all over the world were doing the same thing, it was fabulous. It was so fabulous. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty pleased with the way it turned out. By the way, I called the whole event The Day There It Smiled, because that's what it was.
2: And that photo made page one of the New York Times.
3: Oh, man, was ba-
2: that cool. Back on November 13th, 2013.
3: November 13th?
2: 13-11-13. <gasps>
3: that was the very day that I got the phone call from NASA headquarters that I was made the imaging team leader. Is that cosmic
2: But very day of the year, not, I mean, in what year? 1990. 1990, okay, so there is cosmic alignment.
3: Cosmic love and alignment, <laughs> Neil, right here on your show. <laughs>
2: That's a holdout from the '60s, if there ever was one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm you. she's a bit of a cosmic hippie. I like it. Uh, it's a hippie in the 21st century. Yeah, when the moon is in the seventh hour. <laughs> I Was she back back up for the fifth dimension on that song? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she, she was also invited to give a TED Talk about right. the Cassini mission, and as we're about to hear in the next clip, it not only inspired someone to recreate her talk with a Lego version of herself with Lego audience, but it also led to her involvement in the 2009 Star Trek movie by J.J. Abrams. Oh. I don't want to check it out.
3: This person, her name is Maya Weinstock. She took my whole entire TED Talk and frame for frame, word for word, exactly exactly the way the TED Talk is with the TED backdrop. She recreated the whole entire thing in Legos with my soundtrack over it. It's amazing. And, and you're a little Lego person. My little Lego person. Is, is moving around on the stage. Just with the same gestures, at least as much as she could have. It was incredible. And I'm very proud of that talk because even though I don't think it was one of my best, the people loved it at that conference. Mm-hmm. Ted draws all the captains of industry and so on.
2: Mm-hmm. They're the only ones going to afford the ticket to attend. Oh,
3: oh it's, it's like ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And not only that it's by invitation only. But anyway, J.J. Abrams was in the audience, and I didn't even know who he was. He gave a talk to. Afterwards, we exchanged emails. I put him on my distribution list. You're on it. My dear friends and colleagues, every time there's a new discovery or image. A new Saturn development. Yes. Yes. And nine months later, I get a call, and someone on the other end says, I've got J.J. Abrams on the phone to speak to you. And I said, J.J. who? (laughs) You know, I don't watch Lost. I don't watch television. I only knew him from Ted, but then I forgot about him. I'm sorry, J.J., but that's the truth. (laughs) So we get on the phone, and he says, I've been getting your emails about Saturn, and I just felt like I had to reach out and involve you in this movie.
2: In the Star Trek movie. In
3: the Star Trek movie. And he says that there has never been a science fiction movie better than 2001. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely the pinnacle and I feel exactly the same way and I'm thinking to myself okay I'm in because this guy thinks like me Mm -hmm. so I'm thinking there's gonna be lots of sessions where we're throwing ideas around brainstorming about what the movie should be like in all the areas that I might be asked to comment like on the planetary scenes that's where I thought I'd come in and maybe some science issues and that wasn't really happening I had asked him though I would really love to see a scene being filmed. I'd never seen a scene being filmed, and I was hoping to get on the bridge. I wanted to see what they were gonna do with the bridge. But the day that I was in LA and invited to go see a scene being filmed, I saw the fight scene. So I saw James T. Kirk as a young man get the crap kicked out of him. I saw Chris Pine get punched in the face, up against the wall, ricochet off the wall, fall on the ground, get picked up, punched again, fall on a table. That was in the bar. 26 times. And I really thought, man, I'm glad I don't have this job. <laughs> so we break for lunch. We're at a very unglamorous lunch for everybody who thinks movies are all glamorous. We're sitting at cafeteria tables. I sit with JJ and the guy who was the head of special effects at ILM. And JJ says, I've got a problem. He says, the Enterprise and the crew are coming back into the solar system to save the Earth, and I got to know where to hide them.
2: (laughs) That's why they hid it behind Saturn? You put the Enterprise
3: behind Saturn. Excuse me. I put it in Titan's atmosphere. I told him, have it come out of warp drive in Titan's atmosphere. Which is
2: thick and opaque.
3: And have it rise out submarine style out of the clouds with Saturn in the rings in the background. It'll be a knockout scene. And J.J. says, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And he decided to use it. That was all I ever got asked to do. The next thing I know, they send me some shots from the scene that they rendered. They'd gone to our website, got some pictures. You know, they did a reasonably good job. And I write back and said, well, you know, you got this wrong. Titan's not on an inclined orbit. You got to fix that, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't want to fix any of it. (laughs) <laughs> the guy says, look, if anyone complains about this, just blame it on me. Mm-hmm. So that's all I ever got to do. But I'm very well, that's proud. that's an awesome scene. That scene is one of the best scenes in the movie. It made the cover of the rag in Hollywood about visual effects called Effects, And J.J. used that same thing again in the second movie there's a scene where the enterprise comes out of an atmosphere but you know they never asked me okay well we're hiding it visually what about the electromagnetic signals of course any respectable romulan <laughs> ship is going to be able to pick up uh, signals right yeah yeah. so there's this dumb explanation in the movie about how the magnetic field of the rings hides
2: the electrical signals from, from, from the, the spacecraft from the
3: well okay. you know the rings don't have a magnetic field and they never asked me that but they met you halfway
2: Right, and that's more than meeting you. In no way.
3: Oh, look! You're- I got a whole scene in a major movie that I basically created. I'm proud of. That. So you're in the credits. I'm about two thirds of the way down. Immediately following the Vulcan and Klingon language consultant. <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
2: more of my interview with Carolyn Porco when Star Talk Radio returns. Welcome back to Star Talk Radio. Neil Tyson here. Chuck Nice there. That's right. There is a cross from me. <laughs> We're listening to my interview with Carolyn Porco. She came to visit me at the Hayden Planetarium. Quickly got a Star Talk interview out of that visit. And you're listening to it now. And let's find out about her role in the creation of one of my favorite movies. Contact. Ooh, I know. Let's check it out.
3: I'm reasonably certain I, with maybe four other women, maybe more, maybe even some males who were scientists who surrounded Carl, were people that he drew from to create that character. Well,
2: that was Carl's first novel, and they say that your first novel is always strongly drawn from your personal life experience. In the film, if you haven't seen it, she wants to listen for radio signals from intelligent aliens at a time when that's not an entirely embraced thing for a scientist to do.
3: Right. And also she has this developing relationship, believe it or not, with a religious cleric Mm -hmm. who is the other side of the argument. So to listen to the conversations between Ellie Arroway and Palmer Joss, who was a romantic interest and also a cleric, was very much to read Carl Sagan and what he had to say about the juncture between science and religion. But anyway, I digress. When came time to do the movie, Carl called me up and said out of all the female scientists he knew I came closest to being like the character he wanted to portray on the screen which I immediately thought well of course it's because I'm just so tactless and in your face and in the book that's the way the character is So you're admitting that you're tactless? Why would I try to hide it? It's so obvious (laughs) everybody knows this so there's no point in hiding it So I had a fantastic day with Carl, his wife Andrea, and they were both producers. There was the executive producer Linda Opst. There was the then director George Miller. He got swapped out for Rob Zemeckis. Zemeckis. Bob Zemeckis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later on. Mm-hmm. And then there was. N- this known lot-
2: for the Back to the Future trilogy.
3: Uh, known for Forrest Gump. Yeah. We spent a day sitting around a table in Santa Monica putting together the character of Ellie. And it was, for me, very educational to see
2: the creative this, process is a
3: process remember carl wrote a book and there were five people who go on this journey okay and they had to basically condense five people into one for the film so that's kind of what was going on but they would ask me you know what kind of experiences have you had why do you feel you've done well in a field dominated with men? I said, well, I grew up with four brothers, for God's sakes. I've been <laughs> fighting and spitting and kicking ever since I was a kid. And then, you know, at that point, Carl said, well, why don't we maybe in the movie have Ellie have a lot of brothers? You know, they would do things like that. Because Ellie is spunky in the film. She's very feisty. In the movie, they didn't give her brothers in the end. Mm-hmm. And I have to say the first script I saw, I tore apart. I couldn't stand it. And I was very critical of it. And Wait, so you,
2: since Carl is a scientist himself. He didn't need you as a science consultant. He needed you as a character consultant.
3: I was brought on to lend authenticity to Ellie's experiences in the movie. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to spend time with Jodie Foster. I mean, the way that they do it these days, the actress or actor playing the character. They mirror you, yeah. Yeah, but it was amazing. It took a year of going back and forth with Warner Brothers. They call up and say, quick give us your schedule for the next three months. We're going to try to find a time when you and Jody can spend time together and then nothing would happen. And then after three months, quick, give us your schedule for the next three months. And this went on for about a year and I never got to meet her. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, I was told that she used Carl himself as her role model for how to behave. So I thought, given that it wasn't Carl's book exactly, they did a very good job with it, and I thought she did a brilliant job. And I love that movie. Yeah, it's one of my
2: favorites. Don't you think yeah. it
3: really depicts science accurately?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, not only the science, but what everything I understand about human reaction to a scientific discovery was touched upon in that film. Well, the crazy ways people behave in the face of the knowledge that maybe there's a civilization out there more intelligent than we are.
3: Yeah, yeah. and if that ever happens, we'll probably see things I think like exactly.
2: That. That's going to be our playbook for what's going to happen. Well, so if part of you inspired elements of the main character, does that mean you had a clerical love interest as well sometime in your life?
3: Oh, no, no, you didn't get that from me. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, when I say borrowed, I mean just what you might call ancillary things like you know i went to caltech ellie goes to caltech for graduate school and i think the way she in general looks was more like me than anybody else and her personality For years, I thought he must have drawn her personality from me. But he might have gotten Ellie's personality from his first wife, who was Lynn Margulis, who was a top-notch biologist. I mean, talk about feisty in your face, man. She was a very, very feisty and brilliant woman. So anyway, my main message is Ellie Arroway, in the book, in the movie, is a composite character. There you go.
2: And some have said maybe Jill Tarter might have been represented. Jill Tartar is of the SETI Institute.
3: Jill does SETI, although actually that I think is kind of irrelevant because Carl was going to make a character who does SETI regardless. Well, yeah,
2: that's his thing.
3: But the voice of the whole character is Carl. But Carl. Jill has said her father died when she was young. The character's mm-hmm. father died when she was young in the book. You know, Ellie is described in the book as always wearing skirts. Well, there was another woman on Voyager, her name was Candy Hansen, always wore skirts and Carl was interacting with Candy like he was interacting with me and then of course there's bits of the character's life in the book are drawn from carl's third wife Andrean. Mm-hmm. so this is why lots of us look at ellie and wreck it yeah, everyone feel, can feel for her we see bits of us in her mm-hmm. because bits of us are in her
2: mm-hmm. more of my interview with carolyn porco when star talk radio returns We're back on Star Talk. Neil Tyson here, Chuck Nice, across from me. Yes. Chuck, we're here live. Yes, we are. Uh, there's no I, other way we could was, be here, actually. I was going to say that. <laughs> 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 And again, we could be holograms. <laughs> Not that that would work for a podcast or radio. Hologram, is that the same as, like, you know, candygrams or any other kind of grams? Yeah, well, at uh, Coachella it is. <laughs> So we've got my interview with my astrophysicist, planetary scientist, Carolyn Porco. And she just, uh, she's been. Part of our pop culture in ways that maybe people didn't know. Yes. Having advised J.J. Abrams on the Star Trek film, creating one of the m- most awesome scenes. Yes. With, and with then the Enterprise then have... rising up out of the clouds to so cool. hiding from the, the you know, the, 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 on its way back into the solar system so it can't so be it seen, can't be detected. Dete- I mean, she's totally into it. I mean, that's great. We need more and more folks like this and in who, all the other fields. Who knew that J.J. J. Abrams completely mucked it up scientifically?
1: <laughs> Like, just ruined it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's the, uh, it's the um, magnetic field of the rings of Saturn that made that possible. <laughs> and then she tells us there are no magnetic yeah, the, fields of the, the rings of Saturn. Rings ain't got jack
2: other yeah. than beauty thing, beautiful patterns that's to look it. at. That, that's That's it. all that is. Well, one of my favorite stories about Carolyn, I had to get it out of her for this interview, uh, was uh, something came up some years back when she was profiled in the new york times Mm. yeah yeah let's (laughs) i had to put i had to make sure she told me this story again okay because it's it's even hard to believe that it happened all right let's check it out
3: this woman her name was carolyn needhammer wrote i thought a very good article about me it was the scientist at work series in the new york times And and what year is this now 1999
2: well, it, that's, that's not that long ago. It was. Not, in, it's not like in the 80s or the 70s. No. Okay. It, it
3: was done to be coincidental with Cassini's flyby of Earth, which happened in 1999. And then, you know, there was a lot of hoopla about whether or not the radioactive material on Cassini was going to destroy the Earth.
2: So it flew by Earth to gain some extra orbital energy yes. to get out to Saturn. That's right. exactly okay. right. That's exactly right. Because you didn't have enough fuel to get it there on its own. No, so. You had to, like, borrow orbital energy. Oh,
3: we borrowed a lot. We're in debt after all <laughs> <our> years. <laughs> yeah, so what planets did you take orbital energy oh, from? We took from Venus twice, would you believe? Twice? Oh, poor Venus. Poor oh, Venus. Venus. Mm. It's still there, though. No, it's still there. All right. It's still, and one from Earth, and then we slipped closely by Jupiter. That really helped a lot.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. And that got you to Saturn. All right, and sorry. But, but we s- digress.
3: So August 1999, this article is being written, and the woman says truthful things, good things and bad things or whatever, and she so Submits it to her editors and they come back and say, Find out why Porco's not married. And I said to her, you see, I told you so. I knew this kind of thing was going to happen because I knew they would be very sexist.
2: was not only not married, but never married. Never married. That's the real issue. There are plenty of not married people who have been. Yeah. How old was I then?
3: I was 40-something. In Uh, your 40s. Yeah. So I gave her two responses to use because I was kind of pissed. The first answer was something like, well, just tell them I have a different man every night and I like it that way. (laughs) Okay. You know, and then the other answer was, there are no high maintenance items in my house of any kind, pets, plants, or husbands. And Carolyn Neathammer, in her discretion, used that one. Use the second one rather than yeah, the first one. Yeah, and actually, I got a lot of fan mail from that. Mm-hmm. People writing to me, oh, my 17-year-old daughter thought that was the greatest thing she ever heard. My advanced age, there are still no high maintenance items in my house of any kind, pets, was- plants, or husbands. <laughs>
1: Very cool. Carolyn Porco. She is a fireball,
2: man. <laughs> right. What a feisty woman this Carolyn is. I like her. I'm just amazed in 1999, they'd ask her why she was never married. I know. That is really a sexist I, question. You know they wouldn't have asked that of a man. No. That no wouldn't man. even come up. Exactly. Right. We just assumed you were gay. <laughs>
1: That's, That's all. <laughs> It's what people do to me. They go. Actually, they do it the opposite. They go. Why are you married?
2: <laughs> the opposite question. I get the opposite question. How did you possibly, did you get, possibly get married? <laughs> married? Who would have thought that has an opposite? Exactly. <laughs> Who the hell would marry? Who the you? hell would marry you? <laughs> so I'd forgotten the Cassini actually being launched from Earth. When in these loops, they came back to Earth to get some more orbital energy That's you, it. because it's all about the energy. Right. more than it is about the distance. So if you fly by Earth with energy to reach Jupiter, you're going, you're doing well. So the big concern is Cassini would go so far away from the sun that it wouldn't be able to use solar panels for its energy. Gotcha. So it's loaded with radioactive energy, plutonium. Ah. People worried if you're going to steal orbital energy from Earth and come nearby to do so, suppose you enter our atmosphere and then... Disintegrate, then it scatters plutonium around the world, killing everyone. So there was some protests at the time. Oh, that's all, and it didn't happen. No, it didn't happen because we because we know Newton's laws of motion, and we got this one. See, it's funny how science can even quell a protest. That's how, at its best, that should be doing that all the time. When we come back, our final segment with Carolyn Porco on Star Talk. Back on Star Talk. I'm Neil. That's Chuck. <laughs> Am I getting lazy? I have too uh, many syllables in my name. No, you're just being more efficient. <laughs> Thank you. That's Thank up. you. Uh, we've been interviewing my uh, friend and colleague and planetary scientist, astrophysicist, Carolyn Porco. Yes, Firecracker. Firecracker. And. Uh, the fun part, because we generally don't interview scientists on Star Talk. It's not about that. Right. It's about interviewing people hewn from pop culture and finding out how science influences their livelihood. But here's a case of a scientist who's influenced by pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. So we we turn the tables on that, and it's uh, and I'm loving it. In uh, our last clip that we're going to go to. You know she wants to leave us all with some thoughts inspired by her Cassini image, so that the pale blue dot reprise mm-hmm. that she where where Saturn is eclipsing the sun, and there's this little dot of light in the background there. And it's us. And it's us. It's us. and so she 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 wants to sort of uh, have us think think about that. In in interesting ways, and Saturn, by the way, has many moons. Uh, Mm -hmm. And when Jen, we think about life, not only on the planet, but maybe on moons. I mean, it's there's a lot of ways to to slice this. Let's see how she does it.
3: Can I leave people with a interesting thought in their head?
2: Okay. So as we end our StarTalk interview, Callan, what wisdom, what insight, what sense of our place in this universe can you share with us?
3: I wasn't going there. (laughs)
2: Okay, Okay. what parting words do you have?
3: Just that beautiful blue E-ring. We call it the E-ring. It's
2: the glowy thing on the outermost perimeter of the rings.
3: Right. That ring is created by a hundred geysers erupting from the south polar terrain of a tiny moon called Enceladus, which is no bigger across than Great Britain. And those geysers, we are virtually certain, erupt from a reservoir of salty liquid water laced with organic materials and bathed in excess heat and that is exactly the kind of environment that we have long thought could be inhabited by living organisms okay it's watery the salt in it tells us that the water is in contact with rock, so there's available chemical energy for organisms to live if they can't live off sunlight and there's organic materials So, to me, it is the most accessible habitable zone in our solar system because here this body of water is gushing its materials out to space. And that material, a small fraction of it by about 4%, goes into orbit and makes that beautiful blue ring. So, it's
2: spraying its organic matter into orbit around Saturn.
3: That's what it's doing. And here is a crazy thought. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not out of the question that if there are organisms and microbes in that liquid environment under the South polar terrain, they could be in orbit around Saturn in that ring. Now, is that not the coolest thing you could possibly imagine? Look at that picture. Know that the only place in our solar system we are certain there is life is that little dot to the right and below Saturn.
2: That That dot we call Earth.
3: And then that blue ring also might have organisms in it. So there's a lot in that picture. There's more in that picture than meets the eye. It's beautiful.
2: You're tearing up.
3: I can't (laughs) help I can't help it.
2: There it is. There it is. That is uh that is actually very cool. The universe offering up its its glory. Yeah. (laughs) Now you gotta go there to know it. That's the thing. You need a freaking space program <laughs> to get there. <laughs> you could you wax poetic all you want, right. but all you're going to draw is a Hollywood alien, right? You want you not you got to go there and get and, and embrace those vistas. And then poetry just rolls out of your mouth when that happens. Yeah, I mean, in- so here we we need to take some articulate people and send them into space. They'll come back speaking poetry of Yeats and 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 and, and, and Milton. You know. It's true. Maybe we can get a little funding for this thing. I <laughs> say Yeats. Yeats. His name is Yeats. Yeats. Yeah. Yeats. Thank you. Yeah. Is it Yeats or Yates? Yeats? I've Which heard it both it? ways. Is it Yeats? I've Yeats. heard it. I've heard. Yeats. Okay, let's ignore them both. The poetry of Shakespeare, sonnet. There you go. Okay.
1: Okay. Screw you, Yeats. Yeats. <laughs> Yeast. Yeast. <No. laughs>
2: No, so uh, it's 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 uh, the universe has the power to do this to you, and I think there's not enough of the public who understands or is exposed to to how often that happens to astronomers. Yeah, that's why we do what we do.
1: Yeah, I don't even think there's enough of the public that actually just looks up. Period. Yeah, yeah, just
2: actually look up in the night and you know just see what. Chuck, what are my ending words of every Star Talk podcast? I bid you to keep. Looking. Oh, you can do. You can sub for me on uh, that one. Should, I, 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 you, you do that today. You never heard
1: my Neil deGrasse. No, Tyson?
2: I haven't. <laughs> That's good. We'll, 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 yeah. Okay. You can do my whole stick next time. That's fine. <laughs> Got to teach you some astrophysics first. Yeah, I was but... going to say. There's a small problem with me <laughs> substituting for you.
1: That would be the whole astrophysicist Doctor Neil Tyson thing. Right, okay. <laughs> Hey, Chuck Nice here. You're listening to Star Talk. And when we come back, Neil and I return for our final segment to answer your cosmic queries about the universe. See you in a minute. So let's just jump right into it. This is Eric Schneider, who's coming to us from Twitter. Eric has a very simple question that you guys should be able to bang out with no problem. What's that?
2: 42. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What caused the Big Bang? Oh, I can answer that immediately. Really? Yeah, we have no idea. Next question. (laughs) We really don't know.
4: We really don't know. Next is the charm. Some people are very troubled by that. Right. Other people, like us. Find it fascinating and wonderful and try to pursue an answer.
2: I can tell you that if you put that much energy into that small a volume, right. there's not much choice but to expand
4: mm-hmm.
2: rapidly. Right. The word expand
4: is a... is, is a polite, yes, yes, right. explosion. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Except in fact, thing. in Cosmos, the only time I donned sunglasses mm-hmm. was... At the moment of the big bang,
1: and that's all you need. <laughs> a pair of sunglasses. Right. Yeah, I was good. I was good after that. You know. Right. Well, you know that's the beauty of science. Sometimes the answer is
2: we <laughs> don't know, and that's why we do. <laughs> and, what and don't we leave
1: do. no loose. Don't leave a scarf loose
4: either.
2: Don't. <laughs> but we got top people working on that. Top very people question. working on it. Yes.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, here we go. Jason Rand wants to know this. It has taken Voyager one. 36 years to reach interstellar space. How long would it take a space probe launched with today's technology to reach
2: interstellar space? Uh, it never will because we're not doing that anymore.
1: <laughs> but it's about the
4: same amount. Oh, of
2: God, time. that was so depressing. No, no the thing is uh, <laughs> technology
4: is about the same.
2: No, no. It's no chemical rockets. No, no, Bill, it's not about from... the technology. No, Bill. No, oh, it's about the, the Bill, I, just, of... I was just. I just met with Alan Stern. At okay. had breakfast with him a few days ago. He's the the the, the PI, the principal investigator of the Pluto mission. The New Horizons. Spa- the New Horizons mission. That spacecraft passed the orbit of the moon in like... Nine hours. Nine hours. Wow. I thought it was six hours, but it's nine hours. All right, it took the astronauts three days. So that, that thing is booking. It is the fastest spacecraft ever launched. Relatively lightweight payload on a relatively big rocket. However, Voyager 1, mm-hmm. which was not launched as fast had a final gravity assist to cast it out of the solar system so that nothing we've ever launched has ever or will foreseeably ever reach that speed.
1: Yeah. Okay. The technology
2: so, is about the same. About, yeah, it's the Nothing's same. changed.
1: You launch it and then you, you, you right. sneak it. Right, so it's, be- not the, it's not the technology, it's... It's using
2: a slingshot, it's, basically. Yeah, well, and it, by it, the way, New Horizons got a slingshot from Jupiter, it, it, which is good. But not only did Voyager get a slingshot from Jupiter, it got one from from uh, Neptune, Neptune, and and yes, Uranus. Well, yeah, it had three. Had three it was a three cushion slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> wow! And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so by the way, nice. The planets
4: were aligned in the same way during the Adams administration. In the 1820s, and they didn't do anything about it. <laughs> didn't do anything
2: about it. The Adams administration. That, that does not flow off the tongue. Uh, right, 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 right. Well, we, mm-hmm. We're not
1: contemporaries. Right. Okay. This is uh, coming from um, Facebook, and this is Arnaud, Laisseur Le Arnaud. Okay. Lessieur Arnaud. And, and he's, uh, he says, uh, I am coming. I am from France. <laughs> with an accent. Uh, wow. uh, you know, I well, kind of put that in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, Facebook so, what is his inquiry? I am from France. And this is what he says I am 43. <laughs> <laughs> and I expect to live another 40 of 50 years. Okay. So, I was wondering <laughs> with the best equipment. But of course. <laughs> but, with the best equipment we can conceive for the next 40 to 50 years, what could we use to find out about exoplanets? could we take a decent picture of one could we know whether or not there's an atmosphere it's composition could we see signs of intelligence life what what could we do and by the way thumbs up from across the atlantic
2: nice i got four letters JWST. JWST. Okay, well, here's here's uh, that would be the next generation space telescope, right. which got named after James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope. But, but he who's the first administrator of NASA. Is, was he the first? Okay. Isn't he? I don't know. You're the guy born that I know, he was year. administrator during the, the, the meat of the Apollo era. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, was he the first? Uh, okay. Oh, boy. I yeah. know. Oh, no, he might have been the first. Now I'm I, troubled. I don't remember. Uh, uh, so here you go. Here you go. Okay, You discover a planet. Right. The first way we discover it is not by direct imaging. We just see its gravitational effect on the host star. Don't be ridiculous, Don't Chuck. be ridiculous. <laughs> and you see the host star doing a little jig out there. And right. you say some unseen planet is tugging on it. Okay. So now most of the planets in our catalog are that kind of planet. So now you say, well, how do we know it's really there? Well, because we know what, how gravity works. So we got that. Okay. But now you want to know if there's life. So here's what you do. You wait for that planet to pass in front of the host star. Mm-hmm. Then light from the host star passes through the atmosphere If of there planet. is one. If there is an atmosphere, it'll pass through the atmosphere, and the atmosphere will grab away some of that light, depending on the chemical properties. In now,
4: the notice, atmosphere. everybody, to get this to work in Dr. Tyson's uh, scenario, the planet has to orbit the star in a plane that is visible from here. Okay. Imagine drawing a circle around a star... Uh, As a dot, you would not, that's a much more difficult detection because although the star may be wobbling, you do not get this transit, this uh, moving across. But there's so many millions of these stars and we have cataloged uh, thousands of potential exoplanets. Uh, that may have life, that sooner or later it
2: seems reasonable with an extraordinary instrument we'll be able to have a sniff. So then you look at what's called biomarkers. This is atmospheric, the presence of atmospheric chemistry Mm -hmm. that manifests the existence of life on its surface. Such as that's the life that we would consider life. I'll give you an example. Uh, Yeah, life as we know it. So on Earth, there's oxygen. Right. It took a while for us to figure out and really get under our skin that this Earth was not a planet with oxygen that life then said, oh, this is cool, let me now use this oxygen. Right. Other it's right. The other way around. It's the other way around. Life created, created the, oxygen. the oxygen. So it's like in Star Trek, before they had figured this out, it's, right. oh, Captain, this planet can't sustain life because it has oxygen. Class M. No, no, it's like life made the oxygen. Right. Life can also make methane and other un- otherwise unstable molecules because they're constantly created by something that is completely out of equilibrium called life. And by the
4: way, the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, has a fabulous spacecraft orbiting Mars right now. Fabulous. Fabulous spacecraft. It's fabulous. (laughs) That's what I hear. And it's looking for (laughs) methane. It's detected methane. So what you want to do is, and then recently, uh, for lack of a better noun, a bubble of methane swept over the Curiosity rover. So you cannot help but wonder, are there Martian microbes... Mars microbes making methane there, and once in a while, you get a
1: sniff of a whiff. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you this much. I am going to remember those poetic words the next time I'm with my kids. And a bubble of methane.
4: <laughs> it is something to think about. That's where it comes from. Yeah, methane
2: is the byproduct of microbes doing their thing in an anaerobic environment, such as the conditions that exist in your lower intestine. Right,
4: exactly. There are more bacteria in
1: you than there are people. Easily. Well,
2: I got to tell you something, Bill. There are no people in me. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but how many people are in bacteria? Oh, well, there you go. All right, let's move on.
1: Let's move on. Let's move on. We're coming in three-minute... Red
2: zone. Oh, my okay. God.
1: So we're going to go into the lightning round? Li- Three-minute
2: lightning round. Let's okay, do it. Okay, let's go. do it. Here we go. Uh, Ren Sound light L- answers. Go. Ren L.
1: wants to know, how many more years do you predict that the sun will crumble
2: and become a supernova? The sun will never become a supernova, but it will die, and that day will occur. I have it on my smartphone. It's in five billion years on October 12th. Next.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Dan from Twitter wants to know, will you do a low-Earth orbit trip once available to the public? Yeah,
4: I would do it. Uh, now, you say low-Earth orbit. I think he just means up and down. Yeah, yeah do you, you, well, you see go to space. Black sky, see the stars. Uh, safety's going to have to be a little higher and the price a little lower. But, yeah, I'm
2: interested. Bring it on. Nice. I will, I'll only do it when the person who invented the spacecraft puts his own kids on there. After that, I'll do it. Next. Okay.
1: <laughs> all right. Also from Twitter, John Sterling would like to know, when the Earth and the moon become
2: tidally locked, which side of the Earth will get the view? Nice question. That is so, a good
1: question. So, first of
2: all, the moon is already tidally locked to Earth. All right. And moon is working that same magic on us. All right. All right. So, the moon is slowing us down. We have to compensate for this with leap seconds. As Earth continues to slow its rotation, one day, the... W- one day, the day will come when an Earth day equals a lunar month, and then we are double tidally locked. Oh, and it it's is, an eigenvalue. Yeah, it's 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 basically uh, it's a it's a toss up. What side of the Earth? So will that's be, the answer. It's be, a toss up. Well, because it's it to developed. predict thousands of <laughs> orbits in the future. Which side of Earth is going to be have eternal be, be eternally facing? The, it's a toss up. It's a, it's probably derivable from out of chaos. Okay. They, 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 oh, the be. other
4: thing, the ocean's a big thing in the or the continents drift around. That so affects the flow of the ocean. Take a trip. Actually, really no, no, big. I think it is discoverable because it'd be the side of the earth that has the
2: heavier part. No, we can figure well, this out the continents around, are drifting. Lightning Lightning around. around. It's probably Lightning, Lightning a- Okay, I'm I'm best I'm guessing that Just say left side. The the left side (laughs) (laughs) It's real simple, man. I'm thinking it's the side with all the land masses, not the Pacific Ocean. It turns out to be the right side, you are upside down. No, yeah. No, it's the side without the Pacific Ocean, I think that'll be facing the moon. All right. Yes. Okay. All right. Bang. All right. Lisa Van Stratton wants to know this. How do CMEs? Impact the ISS. A lot of letters Oh, corona mass injections yes. affect the International Space Station. Uh, they're not good. They, inside the space station, they're shielded pretty much. But, okay. yeah, I mean, there are cavities in there that they can go. But these are radiative pulses. Right. from the. But not only that, the space station is not orbiting so high up that there isn't some shielding already going on from them. There's still some atmosphere. Yeah, there's still, still some, some plus atmosphere. Plus,
4: half up. the time, you're on the other side of the Earth. Yeah. Okay. Oh, nice. Yeah, good Look one. Bill,
2: Bill.
1: Hey, hey, yeah, was- I think that's it. That's all we get for the lightning round. on oh my
2: end. Thanks for listening to Star Talk Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Many thanks to our comedian, our guest, our experts. And I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Until next time, I bid you to keep looking up.